Two men in police uniform sat in an unmarked car on Palace Road in Boston. It was just past midnight on March 18, 1990, about an hour after St. Patrick's Day had come to a close. The streets were usually quiet by now, but tonight, drunk partiers stumbling home broke the silence. The two men didn't pay much attention to those shenanigans, though. Instead, they remained fixated on the building across the street, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. The elaborate mansion, constructed at the turn of the century, contained some of the world's most famous paintings by Dutch masters like Rembrandt and Vermeer. They were invaluable, one-of-a-kind masterpieces. Not that the men were interested in art for art's sake. They had a different purpose in mind. The man in the passenger seat tapped his companion's shoulder and nodded toward the museum's side entrance. Someone had briefly opened the door, peeked out, and shut it again. It was time. After easing the car up to the building's side entrance, the two men got out and one of them buzzed the intercom. They called out that they were the police, here to check on a disturbance. After a brief pause, the door buzzed open. They were in. 81 minutes later, the pair left the museum with a collection of stolen art valued today at about $500 million, all never to be found again. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Gardner Museum theft. In 1990, two thieves pulled off the heist of the century, making off with 13 pieces by some of the world's most significant artists. Today, the worth of the stolen loot tops $500 million, and all of it remains missing. This time, we'll dive into the events that led to the heist. We'll walk through what happened that night and the ensuing scramble to separate truth from fiction. We'll also explore a purported sighting of one of the most important works almost seven years after it was stolen. Next time, we'll cover three conspiracy theories about who may be behind the theft and why. First, we'll consider whether it was an inside job. Second, we'll look at the main suspect, the Boston Mafia. And third, we'll explore the possibility that the people originally involved in the heist are dead and that the priceless paintings were destroyed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. 
I know for me in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's Best Hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. The Gardner heist didn't just happen out of the blue. In some ways, it was almost a century in the making. And to understand it, we need to go back to the late 1800s. The museum's founder and namesake, millionaire Isabella Stewart Gardner, belonged to Boston's aristocracy. She frequently traveled to Venice, Italy, where she delighted in the city's art and culture. She was so inspired that in 1899, she purchased land in Boston to build her own center of art and culture, complete with windows, balconies, and staircases imported from Venice. Four levels of trefoil arches, marble floors, and pink stone surrounded a lush central courtyard. It was a palace in the middle of an American city. When construction of the museum finished in 1901, Gardner was poised to fill it with works by the most revered artists in the world. No small feat, but of course, she could afford it. By the time she finished curating the museum, she'd amassed over 7,500 pieces. Gardner was meticulous about how the museum was organized, and she intended for it to stay that way even after she died. In her will, she stipulated that future trustees couldn't make major changes to the building's galleries. If they altered anything, ownership of the museum would go to Harvard University. She thought these parameters would ensure that her collection would stay intact forever. Instead, her will prevented the museum from keeping up with the decades of modernization that came after her. Eighty years after the museum opened, Boston seemed unrecognizable from the city Gardner knew. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum 
now shared the neighborhood with bustling Fenway Park. And while the 20th century marched on around it, the museum's facilities were stuck in the 1800s. Unfortunately, modern amenities were out of the question. The electrical wiring, plumbing, and ventilation systems were all from the original construction. While other museums had climate control to preserve the artwork, the gardener didn't even have central air conditioning. Paintings need to be kept in an environment that's cool and dry. Yet despite the gardener's priceless collection, its galleries were often drenched in heat. On summer days, paintings would actually sweat as condensation collected on the canvases like dew. In other words, it was a conservationist's nightmare. The antiquated conditions extended to the building's security system. The collection housed billions of dollars worth of art, and practically no one guarded it. The museum's wiring, which dated back to an era when electricity wasn't so widespread, couldn't handle a modern video and electronic surveillance system. Plus, the building had no security control room. Instead, there was one desk sitting out in the open, where a front desk person could oversee all the museum's alarms and camera footage. Anyone could just walk up and sabotage it. While the galleries did have motion sensors, they were too outdated. They sat at the entrance of each gallery and would track guests as they came and went. In case of a real emergency, only one panic button, stationed at the security desk, could set off the museum's alarm. If a break-in occurred elsewhere in the building, the guard on duty would have to run all the way back to their base to sound the alarm. Of course, Isabella Stewart Gardner couldn't anticipate how quickly technology would change and render her museum outdated. But it wasn't just her will that stood in the way of change. There was also the Board of Trustees. The group consisted exclusively of men from Boston's most elite families. To say they were old-fashioned is an understatement. While nearly every modern museum has a fundraising program to upkeep facilities, the board refused. They viewed it as akin to begging. So, with almost no money, the museum dragged on into the 1980s. Then, in September of 1981, the feds reached out with an eerie warning. The FBI called the gardener to notify them of a threat. Members of East Boston's Rossetti gang were scoping out the museum for a heist. Led by uncle and nephew Ralph and Stephen Rossetti, the mobsters were seasoned thieves. Around seven months earlier, they'd broken into a mansion in a wealthy neighborhood of Boston and stolen 11 works of art, including pieces by Marc Chagall and Salvador Dali. Yet the Rossettis soon fell into a trap set by the FBI. Unbeknownst to them, they had tried to sell the works to an undercover agent. And possibly worse, they also shared their next target, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. It seems that among Boston's criminal underworld, word had spread about the Gardner's antiquated security system. The FBI emphasized to the trustees that they needed to take the threat seriously because these kinds of criminals didn't mess around. 
the gardener had to prepare itself for an attack. Their warnings were fruitless. The old school trustees remained reluctant to update the security system. Miraculously, for about eight more years, things were fine. There were no break-ins. But then, in 1989, the trustees got another warning call. A neighboring institution, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, got hit with a robbery. That February, two men walked into the gallery with a baby stroller. With only one guard patrolling the room, who was also fielding visitors waiting for a new exhibition, their timing was perfect. With the guard's attention distracted, the two men unscrewed a case holding an antique Chinese vase from the Yuan Dynasty. They swaddled the vase in the stroller and left before anyone noticed, pushing along more than $2 million worth of art. The Fine Arts Museum was only a few blocks from the gardener. The event should have set off alarm bells at Isabella's namesake. And yet, while the board had since appointed a new director for the museum, the trustees seemed to remain largely unconcerned with security risks. About a year later, two men in police uniforms showed up after hours at the Gardner Museum, demanding to be let in. And just like that, the biggest art theft in history began. Coming up, $500 million of art is stolen. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. Now, back to the story. By 1990, the Gardner Museum was one of the most illustrious art collections in Boston. And it was a ticking time bomb. Despite repeated appeals to update the building's security, its board of trustees did next to nothing. And even when the FBI told the museum's leadership that the mafia was targeting the museum... They refused to make significant changes. But at least one person at the Gardner knew it was only a matter of time before the museum got hit. 23-year-old Richard Abbott. 
Like many aspiring musicians, Rick Abbott needed a day job. So when he wasn't hanging out with friends, he was protecting priceless fine art at the Gardner Museum. Working the night shift for a year gave him a lot of insight into the security systems at the museum and just how pathetic they were. He often told his roommate that somebody would eventually figure it out and take advantage. Still, those concerns weren't on Abbott's mind as he arrived for a shift on the night of St. Patrick's Day 1990. In fact, he seemed to be focused on everything but the museum. The bars of Boston were packed for the city's favorite holiday, and he wanted to be in on the fun. Plus, he couldn't help thinking about his plans for the next night, seeing his favorite band, the Grateful Dead. When Abbott started his shift that night, he buckled himself in for a long night of daydreaming. Which was usually fine, given how straightforward the night shift was. One guard would patrol the galleries with a flashlight and walkie-talkie. The other would man the security desk. Then they switched. The only real rules were not to leave the building and to not, under any circumstances, let someone in. It was boring, but at least it was easy. The night started out quiet enough until the museum's fire alarms interrupted Abbott's walk around the galleries. He ran back to the security desk and checked the system. All 30 of the alarms around the museum were going off at once. Usually, only one would go off if there was some sort of disturbance. This seemed like a technical glitch, so he simply reset the system. When the alarms were turned back on, they let out another endless screech. The reset didn't work. Abbott decided it wasn't worth dealing with in the middle of the night, so instead of calling his supervisor, he proceeded to turn the alarms off. Then Abbott continued his rounds. At about 1 a.m., he approached the side entrance of the museum, and inexplicably, he opened the door. There was no reason any door should have been opened that night. And yet, here Abbott was, standing at the side door, peering around the street. He didn't let anyone in, but it was potentially a huge breach of security. Then, just as quickly as he opened it, Abbott closed the door. The lock clicked into place, and he continued to make his rounds. Unbeknownst to the young guard, though, his actions set in motion an event that would go down in art history. Across the street from the gardener, two men sat in a parked hatchback, staring down the museum. They were dressed as police officers, with caps and union pins on their collars. When Abbott opened the side door, the men must have realized it was now or never. At around 1.20 a.m., they rang the buzzer on the side entrance. From inside the building, Abbott snapped out of his reverie at the security desk. He peered at the camera footage and saw the two men standing outside the door. A voice crackled over the intercom. Police were here about the disturbance. Abbott had no idea what they were referring to though he had been trained about what to do in this exact scenario. If police showed up, he was supposed to take down the officers' names and badge numbers, then call police headquarters to verify their identities. 
In the flurry of the moment, these instructions slipped Abbott's mind. So, once again breaking protocol, he buzzed the men inside. The two men pushed the doors open and walked toward the security desk. One was almost six feet tall, heavy-set, and looked to be in his early 30s. The other was older, slightly shorter, and wore gold wire-framed glasses. Both had mustaches. The smaller man asked Abbeth if there was anyone else in the museum. When Abbeth told him about his fellow guard, the officer demanded he join them. So Abbeth called over the walkie-talkie for him to come over. Then, the smaller man commanded Abbeth to step out from behind the desk and show them his ID. It was only as Abbeth approached the officers that he noticed something strange about their faces. Their mustaches seemed fake, like something you'd buy at a Halloween store. But it was too late. By stepping away from the one alarm button in the entire museum, his fate was sealed. The men grabbed Abbeth, shoved him against a wall, and handcuffed his wrists. Abbeth was still processing what was happening when his fellow night watchman entered the room. Before he could warn him, the officers had him handcuffed too. Once both guards were bound, the officers dropped their authoritative tone. They came straight out with it. This was a robbery. The thieves warned the guards not to give them any trouble. Abbeth responded ruefully that the museum didn't pay him enough for that. But he didn't have time to say much else before they covered his eyes and mouth with duct tape. The men then led Abbeth and the second guard down to the basement, where they were handcuffed in place. Then, they reassured the guards that if they behaved and didn't tell the police anything, in one year, they'd receive a reward. After the thieves headed upstairs, Abbeth settled into a long night of fear and waiting. Anxious thoughts raced through his head. The robbers clearly knew their way around the museum. They hadn't hesitated when leading the guards to the basement. This made Abbeth fear they might be people he knew, like former employees. Or worse, maybe he'd bragged about the museum's lack of security to the wrong stranger at a bar. Upstairs, though, the thieves were far more concerned with the task at hand. At 1.48 a.m., they entered a gallery known as the Dutch Room. It housed some of the gardener's most valuable paintings. One canvas in particular stood out. Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee from 1633. Just over five feet tall and four feet wide, it depicts a ship tossed in a wave while the disciples on board fight to regain control. At one end of the boat sits Christ, who appears to be the one calm figure in the scene. It was the only seascape the artist ever did. And yet, the robbers showed no reverence for the masterpiece. They pulled the painting off the wall, smashed the glass front, and cut it from its gold frame. Swiftly, they moved to their next target, another Rembrandt, which they also tore from its wooden backing. They tried to snatch a third Rembrandt, but it was too large. So instead, they took a tiny self-portrait of the artist. Then, they set their eyes on Vermeer's The Concert. 
as one of only 36 known works by the artist and painted between the years 1663 and 1666, the piece depicts two women and a man with his back to the viewer. It was an intimate scene that appeared simple at first, but on closer look was rich with details. The black and white checkered floor, the paintings on the background wall, a viola hidden among the shadows. Oh, and it's worth about $250 million, one of the museum's most expensive paintings. With those treasures in hand, the thieves proceeded to gather what seemed like a random selection of work. A Chinese beaker from around 1200 BCE, five sketches by Edgar Degas, a painting by Edouard Manet, and a bronze eagle finial from the top of a flagpole. Despite apparently knowing the layout of the museum, these choices were puzzling. Aside from the Dutch masters, the robbers left some of the most valuable pieces untouched. They didn't take works by Michelangelo or Titian, or a more valuable Manet that was right next to the one they stole. It seemed like they didn't know much about art. All in all, they took 13 pieces. In 81 minutes, the theft was over. After stashing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art in the back of their car, the thieves drove off. Coming up, a city awakes to the heist of the century. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On the morning of March 18, 1990, two daytime security guards arrived at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. But when they rang the buzzer to be let in, no one answered. Their puzzlement soon grew into concern. There was no way in except to be admitted by the guards from the previous shift so they called the museum's deputy director of security, Larry O'Brien. When O'Brien arrived with his key, he hurried inside. The first thing he noticed was an unfurled clothes hanger on the floor by a vending machine, like some rambunctious kids had tried to steal a chocolate bar. That was unusual, given the usual cleanliness of the museum. The stolen candy was only the tip of the iceberg, because the two night watchmen were nowhere to be found. Then O'Brien saw something that made his heart sink. Lying on the chair behind the security desk was the empty picture frame that once held Manet's Shea Tortoni. Immediately, O'Brien leapt into action and called the police. 
something terrible had happened, and it seemed that not only had the museum been robbed, the two night watchmen might also be dead. The police arrived shortly after and helped O'Brien search the premises. When they came upon Abbott and his fellow guard tied up in the basement, O'Brien heaved a sigh of relief. Though the two guards were alive, they were far from well. They'd been handcuffed in a damp basement for the past five hours. They were cold, their hands were numb, and they had difficulty breathing through the duct tape that encircled their heads. What's worse, the police didn't release them right away. They wanted to take crime scene photos first. In the meantime, the museum's conservator had arrived and began assessing what had been stolen. To their dismay, the damage was far worse than O'Brien first thought. At the time, they estimated that the missing art amounted to at least $200 million, but it may have been far more. From what the conservator detailed, it was possibly the biggest art theft in recorded history. The gardener's director, Anne Hawley, agonized over the lost art. She'd just barely settled into her job when the world's biggest heist occurred under her watch. But it wasn't just about the money. There was the cultural loss. Some of the world's greatest paintings were gone, spirited away by thieves who, judging by the bits of frayed canvas, still clinging to the frames, had little knowledge of or respect for art. As the staff struggled to make sense of what had happened, more investigators arrived on the scene, and this time that included the FBI. Remember, almost 10 years before, the Bureau had warned the gardener to be on alert. Their advice went unheeded, and now the worst had come true. Immediately, the FBI claimed the heist as their jurisdiction. In the coming days, they sent out 40 agents to investigate the case. They theorized that whoever stole the art did it in order to ransom it back to the museum or sell it to a private collector. But art thefts are often a long game, very long. Normally, it can take years to recover stolen art. Criminals can't exactly walk into Christie's and put one-of-a-kind priceless paintings up for auction. So they usually sit on the work and wait for things to cool down before trying to move it. This meant that the Gardner Museum had to wait and hope that eventually someone would come out of the woodwork. They even put up a $1 million reward for their safe return. But this was chump change compared to what was stolen. Months passed without any promising leads. FBI interest in the case dwindled until there was only one agent left. Months stretched into years. Still, no leads emerged. But in April 1994, a major clue fell into director Anne Hawley's lap. Hawley came into work one morning to find an envelope with no return address. Inside was a typewritten letter. What was on the page made her eyes widen. The writer claimed that they could arrange for the return of all 13 stolen pieces. Howley knew to be wary of letters like these. She'd received them before, and usually they were dead ends. But this one stuck out. The writer knew things about the theft that were never made public. Plus, the letter revealed something the others hadn't. Motive 
It claimed that the paintings were stolen, not for money, but to negotiate a reduced prison sentence. Using stolen art for negotiations was a common tactic in organized crime. At the time, there was a thriving black market for art, especially as prices for renowned painters began to skyrocket in the 1980s. If a mobster faced time, their buddies could leverage stolen artwork and use it as a bargaining chip with authorities. In exchange for a more lenient sentence, the painting was returned. It was a win-win, sort of. Surprisingly, the letter went on to say that the original plan was no longer relevant. Though it didn't specify why, it could have been because the people involved were already out of jail or dead. At this point, the writer merely wanted to return the pieces to the museum in exchange for immunity from prosecution and, of course, a reward. The writer demanded $2.6 million to be deposited into an offshore bank account. And they had one last strange request. To prove that the museum was serious, the writer told Hawley to ask the Boston Globe to make an edit to its currency section of the next Sunday edition. The publication was to put a numeral one in front of the value of the Italian lira. Hawley didn't hesitate. She contacted the FBI and made it very clear that she wanted to do exactly as the letter said. They were not to charge anyone in connection with the case. And supposedly, the FBI agreed to the plan. On May 1st, 1994, the Boston Globe ran the currency section with the extra number one in front of the lira. And soon, another letter arrived on Hawley's desk. She tore it open, but as she read, her countenance fell. According to the writer, the FBI hadn't kept its promise. Apparently, the Bureau was on high alert and looking to make an arrest. The letter writer didn't want to risk jail time just to give the artwork back. So the writer wanted to put their offer on hold until things quieted down. Howley never heard from them again. For years, the director agonized over the missed opportunity. Maybe she should have done things differently. Maybe she shouldn't have alerted the FBI. Perhaps then, the art wouldn't have slipped through her fingers. Three more years passed with no movement on the case, until 1997. That's when murmurs about the Gardner art heist began to surface among Boston's criminal underbelly. It all started with a petty thief named William Youngworth III, an associate of the infamous Boston art thief, Miles Connor. In July 1997, the FBI raided Youngworth's house and discovered that he was storing Miles' stolen art and antiques, some of which had been missing for decades. Soon, Youngworth was facing charges related to drugs, illegal firearms, and a stolen vehicle found on his property during the raid. Prison time looked imminent, unless he had something to negotiate with. So, while out on bail, he contacted Tom Mashberg, a reporter for the Boston Herald. Mashberg had looked into the raid on Youngworth's house, and he'd found an FBI report suggesting that Youngworth might know something about the missing Gardner paintings, since he was so connected to Boston's art black market. 
Youngworth was in prison at the time of the Gardner heist, but he likely had some leads, and he kept insinuating to Mashberg that he had something big. Mashberg was working one day in August when Youngworth called him to say they should go for a drive that night. He didn't say where, though. When Youngworth showed up around midnight, the reporter climbed into the passenger seat of Youngworth's car, and off they went. Youngworth, who seemed to be suffering from a drug addiction, was visibly on edge. For most of the drive, he directed his rage at the feds, yelling about how they were trying to put pressure on him with bogus crimes. If they wanted the paintings, he wanted things in return, like $5 million, the release of Miles Connor from prison, and for the FBI to drop all charges against him. It was a hefty bargain. As they drove, Youngworth got angrier and angrier. Mashberg worried that he'd made a horrible mistake getting in the car with this loose cannon. They'd been driving for hours, and he still had no idea where they were going. Finally, Youngworth told them their destination, Brooklyn, over 200 miles away. They arrived outside an apartment building early the next morning while it was still dark. Youngworth got out of the car and had Mashberg stay behind. The journalist had no choice but to sit apprehensively on the empty street. Then, about 30 minutes later, Youngworth came back visibly more sedate. It was clear their first stop had been to score some drugs, not the Rembrandts. But Youngworth drove on, this time to a nearby warehouse. No one was around as the two men entered the building. They used flashlights to find their way in the unlit halls. It appeared to be a storage space. Finally, they stopped in front of a door. Youngworth unlocked it with a key and revealed a small room. In one corner, a bin stuffed with thick cylindrical tubes, the kind used to store rolled-up art, stood up against the wall. Youngworth ordered Mashberg to step back as he took the cap off one of the tubes and pulled out a large canvas. Then he unrolled it dramatically. Mashberg gasped. It was the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Through the gloomy darkness, the journalist peered at the painting. It appeared badly cracked, but he could make out Rembrandt's signature on the ship's rudder. He wanted to look closer, but Youngworth quickly rolled the painting back up. The meeting was over. They drove back to Boston. To prove the work's authenticity, Youngworth eventually gave Mashberg paint chips he said were from the work. He also provided photographs of the two stolen Rembrandt paintings. Nine days later, Mashberg published the story of his midnight ride. He was the first person to have seen any of the Gardner paintings since the theft. And to this day, he's the only person. The question is... Was everything he saw fake? When conservators tested the paint chips, they disputed whether they actually came from the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Additionally, the real painting had many coats of stiff varnish, which would have made it difficult to roll up into a tube like Mashberg witnessed. And then, the pictures Youngworth furnished turned out to be photographs of photographs, not the actual paintings. 
When Youngworth failed to produce more evidence, his credibility faded. He ended up receiving a two to three year prison sentence for the stolen vehicle charge that came from the raid of his home. It appeared that Youngworth was just another low-level criminal trying to con the museum out of its reward money. He never explained how he got a hold of the artwork. But he did hint to Mashberg that he had connections to some big names. And as investigators looked into it, they realized that his ties reached further up than they thought, all the way to the Boston mob. As it turned out, Youngworth knew the Rossetti gang, and he was tied into the larger Merlino crew, who trafficked cocaine throughout New England. According to FBI informants, they'd been talking a whole lot about the Gardner art. So whether or not Youngworth actually had the paintings, his story may have had a ring of truth. At its core, all signs pointed to the Boston Mafia. Which was in the midst of its own bloody gang war at the time of the museum heist. Rival mobs vied for power and territory. And whenever one of their wise guys got arrested, they planned to use their favorite bargaining chip, stolen art. Next time, we'll cover three conspiracy theories related to the heist and who might have been behind it. Like conspiracy theory number one, the Gardner heist was an inside job. And conspiracy theory number two, the robbery was a play by the Boston Mafia to negotiate more lenient prison sentences. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, the original culprits are dead and the Gardner's stolen artwork is lost. Get ready to dive into the seedy world of Boston gangsters where life is cheap and stolen art even cheaper. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Gardner Museum heist, amongst the many sources we used, we found Master Thieves by Stephen Kirkjian extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And... The official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>